0: I think he's mostly motivated by his theory that I used to think was instrumental, and now I think he really believes it, is that we're out to get him, and, and we're out to overthrow regimes that we don't like around the world, and we don't like his regime, so we're out to overthrow his. And by the way, I want to be clear, because I've actually had this, this conversation with him. There's some empirical data to support that hypothesis about American foreign policy. That's why it's so hard. It's not black and white.
1: Towards the end of my Russian foreign policy course, give my students a bunch of readings and ask them, is it Russia or is it Putin? And I think the answer not to, to hedge my bets here is that it's some of both.
2: Nothing in history is ever predetermined. It takes, it takes actions to get to get somewhere and it took a series of actions to get to where we are today.
3: Hello there. Welcome to The Naked Prob. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. I'm recording this on Friday, November 20th, and today's show is something I've been trying to put together for a few weeks now. Back in early October, Medusa learned about a whole archive of transcripts between members of the Clinton administration and Vladimir Putin, dated between 1999 and 2001. Records that were first declassified and published by the Clinton Digital Library in August 2019. Medusa wrote three feature stories based on these archives, really just highlighting and contextualizing some of the more memorable exchanges, like when Presidents Clinton and Putin met in New York in September 2000 to discuss the Kremlin's domestic handling of the Kursk submarine disaster, and there are also phone calls where the two leaders plotted together to remove Yugoslavian President Slobodan Milosevic from power, and things like that. Reading over these exchanges now, the takeaway, I think, is that the relationship between Moscow and Washington has soured a lot to put it mildly. And Putin's rhetoric particularly has taken on a very different flavor. That's not a revelation, obviously, but it is a stepping stone to a larger discussion that has developed over the years among scholars and Russia analysts about how the West lost Russia, how Russia turned to authoritarianism, how Putinism emerged, and so on. These are big questions where reasonable people can disagree, of course, and the pendulum of uh, plausible explanations swings somewhere between the two extremes of structure and agency. That on the one hand, it all boils down to either the world system, the essential nature of Russian and Western civilizations and changing power capacities, or on the other hand, it's actually more fluid factors like the idiosyncrasies of specific leaders and various domestic attributes that really determine foreign policy and how conversations like those between Putin and the Clinton administration played out 20 years ago. The truth naturally, and maybe unsatisfyingly, is somewhere between all that.
0: I first met him in the spring of 1991, and I've written about him. And, and for a while there, I interacted with him in the U.S. government. I am firmly in the camp of those that say his ideas have evolved.
3: If you follow Russia closely, you'll likely recognize that voice. It belongs to Michael McFall, a political scientist at Stanford University who served in the Obama administration for five years as his top Russia expert. First as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russian and Eurasian Affairs at the National Security Council in the White House, that was from 2009 to 2012, and then as Ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2012 to 2014. He's the author of many books and scholarly articles, most recently From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American Ambassador in Putin's Russia in 2018, and more recently Putin, Putinism, and the Domestic Determinants of Russian Foreign Policy, which just came out last month in the fall edition of the journal International Security where Ambassador McFall argues, as the title suggests, that ideology has shaped Putin's Russia more than the raw power considerations that are at the heart of what is known as realist thought in international relations.
0: I do not believe that the, the ideas he had in the spring of 91, or when he became prime minister in 1999 versus today, that they're, they're the same views. With respect to democracy, I think those are, are pretty consistent. I don't think there's much evidence to suggest that he's a big fan of checks and balances on state power. He believes in this idea of a strong state, you know, he's written a lot about it. I've heard him personally talk about it and you know, he's I would also say he's a bit dismissive of the people, right? That they need to be led, they're not capable of choosing leaders. But on on economics in the West, I think there's been pretty radical change. You know, first economics. Let's remember you know, this is not a guy, he's, he's not a member of the Communist Party. Uh, you know, he had his. He could have come back from Dresden and joined the Communist Party and joined the opposition and, and rallied to the cause of keeping the Soviet Union together. He didn't do that. He went and worked with Anatoly Subchak, who back then, when I met him, I, I knew Subchak pretty well back then, was the most pro-Western, pro-democratic, you know, pro-market person in the entire city. And then after that, remember, you know, he could have again joined Zhirinovsky or the Zuganov. No, he didn't, he played this inside game working with the leadership that was in place at the time, Yeltsin and, you know, guys like Chubias and and Kudrin. These are not exactly communist, nationalist kinds of characters. And they're the ones that revived his career after, you know, some chalk lost election.
3: If he's this, if he's such an ideologue now, was he that in the 90s? Was it was it ideology that was motivating him in the 1990s? Because it seems as though he was being opportunistic and he was just running with the person that seemed to be doing the best. And now, is it now is he not doing that? Is he not opportunistic anymore? I
0: mean, let's be clear: everyone, individuals, are always opportunistic and motivated by ideas at the same time. And the the false dichotomy that academia forces us in: are you a liberal or a realist? you know my own research and my own experience in the government is those are nice fine neat theories in academia but the the rest of us live in a much more complex world and even individually i would say that you know like you know i have idealistic things i try to do and i have instrumental things i, I do you know from time to time and do i are they in contradiction sometimes yes sometimes no i, I think we're all like that my my take on putin is he's been, this he's been wrestling this for with A long time because yes, he said the greatest tragedy in the history of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union, but everybody forgets the phrase he said after that. You know, you had have to be a fool to try to recreate it. Or I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. And I think he's been toggling back and forth, not unlike the way some Americans have been toggling back and forth about how to think about Russia, about engaging, joining the West being in that society versus where he is now, where he's like, all right, I've, I tried, you know, his view is we tried. The West screwed us. They were not real partners with us. So now, you know, we don't need to be part of their clubs. That That is where he firmly is today. And I think he's mostly motivated, you know, many things are at play there, but he's mostly motivated by his theory that I used to think was instrumental. And now I think he really believes it is that we're out to get him and, and we're out to overthrow regimes that we don't like around the world and we don't like his regime. So we're out to overthrow his. And by the way, I want to be clear because I've actually had this, you know, <laughs> this conversation with him episodically a couple of times. And I've most certainly had this conversation with his inner core many times. There's some empirical data to support that hypothesis about American foreign policy. That's why it's so hard. It's not black and white. United States of America did give money to opposition groups in Serbia to help overthrow Milosevic. That is a fact. That is not a fact that because we did it in 2000 that, you know, McFaul was sent to Moscow to orchestrate the same thing against Putin. That That is not true, but it's a hard conversation. It's a complicated conversation, and, and, and I think in some ways Putin is right to be paranoid about the West and democracy and liberalism. And even me, like, you know, I, I understand why he didn't like me as an ambassador, because I spoke openly about things that, that he thought were antithetical to his worldview. But I want to say something really important, at least in my view. It's, it's, a, it's a zigzag. It's not this straight trajectory.
3: I asked Sergei Rajanka, a former guest on this podcast and a professor of international relations at the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University about some of these zigzags, the moments in Russia's relationship with the West when the trajectory suddenly nosedived. Specifically, I asked him about the war in Kosovo, which some prominent voices in Russia identify as when they became disillusioned with the USA in the 1990s. Dr. Rachinka argues that these questions about where it all went wrong highlight more continuity between the Putin and Yeltsin administrations than some will admit. I know that Margarita Simonyan, the RT editor-in-chief, she regularly refers to Kosovo as this moment that, for her, her kind of American dream was shattered. I think she she's talked about being with her American host family and discussing this and, and realizing that there was a real divide that she she kind of felt her Russian identity over the, the the you know American. I
2: don't actually agree with that entirely. Although I think 1999 was very important, but before 1999, you already had you already had the Russian invasion of Chechnya under Yeltsin and the fallout from that there that I mean if if we're looking for rude awakenings I think 1993 was one important moment when after the after Yeltsin turned on the parliament where you had the constitutional crisis and then after the obviously the parliament was dissolved you have a new constitution you have new election new elections supposedly you know the democratic darling Yeltsin holds new elections who comes to power I mean, who gains most votes, most representation in the Duma? It's the it's the LDPR under Zhirinovsky and it's the communists. How could this be? You know, what happened to the democratic ideals? And there already is fear at that point, certainly in Eastern Europe, certainly about you know, among the, you know, the polls in particular, Lech Wolensa was among the first to say, you know, every second Russian thinks like Zhirinovsky, We have to watch out, look at the you know, Russia is going rogue again, they're going imperialist again. And there's clearly already rethinking of the relationship in the Clinton administration with some people like Antony Lake, the national security advisor saying, okay, well, you know, Russia, we have to, we have to. I don't I, I don't think he used the word containment. I think the word was something like, you know, Russia is already going to the bad. And Stroke Talbot was a key person in Clinton in the Clinton administration responsible for relations with Russia, also was gradually won over to this perspective of Russia being something of a dark actor, really. So that's already happening in 93. Then you have 94, and 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 uh you have that that speech. If you remember in Budapest, where Yeltsin comes to this meeting of the OC and he, he says, well, there's going to be we Finished the cold war, but there's going to be cold peace in Europe if NATO continues enlargement. So, there's this very alarmist rhetoric coming from Russia saying, Don't push us, don't push on us too hard because we don't like that. Remember that Yeltsin first wanted to be in NATO, he actually put that as a huge, you know, goal for Russia. Let's, you know, take us into NATO, everything will be fine. The Eastern Europeans, are like, Oh, don't go there, that's crazy, don't take the Russians on board. And of course, nobody in America seriously considered that, in other European. He and allies were like, okay, no, not the Russians, that'll ruin the whole organization. But Yeltsin, for all kinds of reasons, you know, for him, it was a question of status, of prestige. We want to be regarded as a part of the big club, big boys, and standing there next to the United States. They were rejected. And so that from that you have a backlash already coming from Russia already in 94, 95. and 95. And that is also seen in Yugoslavia, where the Russians are trying to play their own game in Bosnia, but they're basically kind of sidelined, and obviously what. Dayton comes along, Dayton peace settlement of the Bosnian crisis, the Russians are basically cut out of the deal. It's all kind of done out, you know, they are kind of there as a decoration, but they're really not there when it comes to actual real negotiation. And so there's a sense already in the in in the Russian p- policy elites, that the that Russia will never be given a a, a seat at the table, not just any seat, because that's what that's not what the Russians wanted. They wanted a seat of importance, like next to the United States, right? Not somewhere close to the door, not in a little you know taburetka where you put it sort of next to the main table. You don't want that. No, you want a good seat, and and that wasn't happening. And then you come to Kosovo, since you mentioned Kosovo and Simanian's views on that. Absolutely, I mean Kosovo was striking in the sense that even Russian most committed liberals at that time were against American action in Kosovo. People like Yvlinsky Grigory yvlinsky you cannot find a more liberal person than the old uh, Grigory Yvlinsky you know, already back then he was uh, arguing with the Americans saying, don't do that because this will totally ruin our positions in Russia, we liberals, will be undermined by this American action because people will say, "Look, this is American imperialism all over again." Kosovo today, Russia tomorrow. You know how are we going to do? How how can we how can we defend this kind of position? And I I, I can just say that I, I recently was looking at the Duma debates in 1999, looking at Kosovo specifically, and you can just see the amount of hostility and scorn and just absolute hatred that was directed against the United States in the context of those discussions, in which I would have to say, not just the, not just the communists, not just some, you know, nationalist, quasi-fascist or somebody like that participated, no, including the liberals as well, who were very, very dissatisfied with this. So, yeah, I I mean, I would, I would endorse Kosovo as an important turning point, but I would just say there's greater continuity going back uh, to even to the early 1990s. The question about continuity between Putin and Yeltsin
3: is tricky, I think, because Yeltsin represents for many the idea that democracy, or at least a more democratic system, is possible for Russia because that's what Yeltsin instituted and represented. And all Russia needs is somebody else like him, and boom, you're back on track. If there's too much continuity between these regimes, however, the causal strength of Putin's individuality starts to wane, and assumptions rise that Yeltsin was merely working with weaker stuff. I asked Carol Savitz, a senior advisor at MIT's security studies program, to weigh in on this continuity question.
1: I think on the one hand, if you go back and look at the record, that Yeltsin, when he was dealing with Bill Clinton and the initial proposal to expand NATO, et cetera, et cetera, was just as angry about it as Vladimir Putin proved to be for the second round, but Russia at that point was in no position to really counter and to stand up to the West. And there were all these reports of the conversations between, I guess maybe it was Warren Christopher, I don't remember, you know, where they came up with some kind of the compromise was the partnership for peace. And then, you know, one said, but that didn't mean that NATO would never going to expand. It just meant we weren't doing it yesterday or, or today. So there's that There's that piece of it. You know, Yeltsin brought Putin in because they thought he was some gray sort of innocuous guy who was going to protect what the Yeltsin family had stolen and and protect their interests and make sure that Yeltsin wasn't prosecuted or anything. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, there's Vladimir Putin installing his generation of oligarchs and everything else because the graft was just, you know, too too good to resist. But Russia was in a better shape you know, nine years later than it was earlier on. I did an interview in Moscow at one point where the person I was speaking with argued that after 9-11, Putin, as I said, really wanted what I keep calling the seat at the table, wanted to restore, you know, Russia's luster and that he really, he offered the help, he offered the overflights, he offered the intelligence sharing, he basically pushed Uzbekistan or allowed Uzbekistan to, you know, to has the base, the K-2 base and everything else. But the big dividing point was the war in Iraq, that Putin basically begged George W. Bush not to go to war in Iraq, in part because of Russia's oil interests and the contracts that they, at that point, late 2002, early 2003, had just signed with the Saddam Hussein um, government. And so this person I was talking to in Moscow said that, Putin really tried early on to be everything that the West wanted, wanted it to be. You know, He tried being sort of quasi-democratic, he tried cooperating and everything else. And when he couldn't deter the United States from attacking Iraq, he said, so what's the point of doing all this? And if you look at it, March 2003 is the war, Khodorkovsky gets arrested in the summer of 2003. And basically the anti-democratic turn happens at that point. And I have to think about it because I hadn't sort of put all those issues together in one, you know, historical arc. But as I think about it now, it makes sense to me. Remember, going back to 2001, Bush hosts Putin at Crawford and the story is that he thought he was going to go ride a horse and it turned out it was a jeep on the, the Bush ranch and everything. But what it Bush do within months. He abrogated the ABM Treaty, which the Russians, even though they were cheating, didn't want to be torn up, and announces the second round of NATO expansion. So you can see where the, the coup de grace would be the war in Iraq, where again, he, he'd been trying to be sort of a quasi-Democrat, and nothing happened. He got no reward for it.
3: Professor Rajenka agrees that leaders' intentions are key to shaping foreign policy, but he says Russia's capabilities... Also changed dramatically between the Yeltsin and Putin years.
2: I mean, Putin, okay, he, of course, we, we know about his background and the intelligence. I won't make too much of it because between that and Putin. Prime Minister Putin and the President lie the 1990s, where Putin played the role of a prominent liberal, so to speak, you know, working with subchak and whatnot. And when he first came to power, he was keen to stress that Russia was a part of the West. He was keen to reach out to the United States. You go back to the 1990s, Russia was in a, in a situation where it was basically a supplicant of the West. It depended on the largesse of, of, of its Western donors, sometimes just for the functioning of the government, and it, it depended. An IMF infusion in of IMF cash, for example, and so it had to—it it had to adjust its policy accordingly. An interesting moment actually occurred during the Kosovo crisis, and actually in the run-up to the Kosovo crisis, the fact that the Russian government was virtually bankrupt and was ba- basically begging the West for money—did that have anything to do with the uh, with the, with, uh, for example, Clinton administration's more assertive attitude vis-a-vis Russia in the late 1990s? Did they think they had all the cards and they could force the Russians to do what they wanted to because the Russians were supplicants and the Russians depended on them? I think, yeah, I think there, you, can, you, can, you can make this kind of parallel. But if you then argue that, you know, Yeltsin had a different perspective and different view of what Russian, Russia may look in the future of Russian relations with the West, I would just encourage you to look at what, uh, what the Russians were doing in Chechnya in the mid-1990s. This was a you know, brutal, basically, you could call it an imperialist war that was not very, you know, obviously uh, not a very liberal thing to do. And there was a lot of opposition to this war within the Russian liberal community in the mid-1990s saying, you know, that this is absolutely, you know, this is an expression of Russian imperialism. How could Yeltsin, who's the darling of the West and who seems, you know, who, if, if, if you say that he wanted to have such a good relationship with the West and that he was just so liberal, et cetera, et cetera, why would he engage in this kind of war? You see, that's because he had the capability to do so. This was within his Ability to force this kind of outcome. Of course, it was a very, it was an outcome that he started. Try to force, and it came to nothing. Obviously, then the Russians basically lost the first Chechen war, and then Putin came in, and then you know he had the ability to uh, to bring that to a conclusion that he wanted. So again, we have capabilities, and we have intentions, and capabilities are a prerequisite of intentions. You cannot have an intention to do something and not have and not not have the capability to do something. So we cannot really talk about Yeltsin as some kind of a, a very different figure from Putin, because allegedly he had no intention to have you know to bring. About this kind of relationship that we ended up with, simply, simply, Yeltsin did not have the capability of 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 being of playing a more assertive part on, on the on the global stage.
3: One of the challenges of debating whether it's ideology, power, or opportunism that drives decisions by somebody like Vladimir Putin, is that any decision maker believes they're pursuing their own interests or their country's own interests when they act. Nobody would embrace the notion that they've abandoned realism or reality. Dr. Savitz says this is a challenge she raises in class.
1: I always towards the end of my Russian foreign policy course, give my students a bunch of readings and ask them, is it Russia or is it Putin? Because I think that's the question that you're, you're asking. And I think the answer, not to, to hedge my bets here is that it's some of both. I think that Russia, if you're a realist in terms of classical international relations theory, you believe that any country in Russia's position would have behaved in a certain way. Now, Putin, I think, brought his own flourishes to that. To those foreign policy goals. Take, for example, the Ukraine issue 2013-2014. There are people who argue that it's all our fault, meaning the West, because we expanded NATO and we had the summit in 2008 and we were talking about Georgia and Ukraine and NATO. And the argument would be that any country feeling that the enemy was coming so close to its borders would react. The question then becomes, did did Russia have to react exactly in the way that Vladimir Putin chose to react? And you might even argue that perhaps the annexation of Crimea, my Ukrainian friends will hate this, perhaps the annexation of Crimea was a response to those fears the one place where I see a legitimate concern was what would a new Ukrainian government circa 2014 do about Sevastopol, which was clearly, you know, which is clearly the seat of the Black Sea fleet, would it suddenly become a NATO base, a NATO naval base? If you wanna believe that, that's fine. That doesn't explain unleashing the war in Donbass, for example. I think that is where I would say that's a particular Putin flourish on a foreign policy that una- that any state feeling surrounded by its enemies might have have pursued. D- do you see the difference? Do you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a difference in there. It didn't have to play out exactly as it did, and I think that that's sort of Putin's contribution, if you will, to Russian foreign policy.
3: Ambassador McFall wants people to have a better appreciation of ideology and warns against the central conceits of the so-called realists, those who argue that naked material interests and raw power capacity drive all international relations. He explained this to me when I asked him if there's any hope that ideology might play less of a role in future U.S.-Russian relations, should conflict fatigue set in and sober up the folks in Moscow and Washington. I think there's a road back to a more pragmatic relationship. If, If ideology has motivated many of his biggest decisions, is it possible that he's swinging back to something that's less ideological or somehow more pragmatic? Or is that is that at all on the horizon, or is it possible in your view? I don't see
0: ideology as always in tension with pragmatism. I want to just—that's just my own view, right? Like I—I'm a liberal, you know. Uh, in academia, I'd be coded as a liberal institutionalist. I actually think that's a very pragmatic strategy for American foreign policy. And when I hear realists appropriate the word pragmatism, I, I just want to be clear: a lot of people, millions of people, over hundreds and thousands of years have been killed in the name of realpolitik and balance of power politics. So I I just want to, you know, ideologies are ideologies. Realism is an ideology. In my view, liberalism is, Marxism is, you know, and illiberalism is. And, you know, the way I look at Putin today is over the course of time, he's become more ideological. He's become more religious, by the way, too. I think that's an important thing to, to look at. And if, if, 20 years ago, it was kind of incoherent what he thought about these things. Today, I think he has a pretty consistent ideology about the world. Uh, he, you know, he would call himself a classic conservative, orthodox conservative. I would call him illiberal conservative, orthodox. He believes in sovereignty and not multilateralism, right? And he's very consistent on that and i you know i could go through the list and and i know you know i got to know some of his ideological advisors i think you can say there's a coherent idea there in the first decade he was president he was mostly focused internally you know that's the heyday of surkov in the last decade he has been exporting this ideology and 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 by the way, they've been learning from Americans, like, you know, NGOs and, uh, you know, and National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, they studied all these things. Guys like Sergei Markov, if you know who he is, I mean, he used to work at the National Democratic Institute, American group that I worked with many, many moons ago. So, so they have studied how the United States uses multiple instruments to propagate liberal ideas or democratic ideas. And Putin now sees himself in this ideological struggle. And by the way, he thinks he's doing pretty well. You know, he's got he's got allies all over Europe. Some are in power, like in Hungary. Salvini's a pretty powerful guy. Le Pen is kicking around Farage. For a while, he had a, an ideological ally in the United States, President Trump. So so he definitely sees this as going on, and, and he's not gonna shut it down. You know, he's not going to pull the plug on RT so that he can have a more pragmatic relationship with President Biden. That's not going to happen. But at the same time, like we did in the Cold War during periods of detente, you can do both things at the same time. You can uh, agree to disagree about democracy versus dictatorship and at the same time do a deal on arms control that we learned how to do during the Cold War. That is what I thought we were doing in the early days of the reset. You know, we weren't checking our values at the door. Barack Obama, President Obama went to Moscow in 2009 and he he met with Putin and he met with Medvedev. And he also sat down with Boris Nemtsov and the opposition leaders. And, you know, because it was a different era, nobody had a lot of heartburn about it. It was only when these other events internally happened in Russia that there was all this, you know, hysteria about color revolutions and I think there's a there's a a way that you can cooperate on some things and then agree to disagree on other things, you know? I can buy your car from you Kevin and I don't have to, you know, <laughs> uh, go to the same church you go to. I have to do that, right? We can do transactions in one space and then do other things in a different ideological dimension in another place as long as there's not linkage between those two sets of issue
1: areas.
3: Carol Savitz says she agrees that diplomacy is still possible between Russia and the United States, despite mutual concerns about the other's intentions and capabilities.
1: I think any one of these junctures, any one of these decisions, if we had not gone to war in Iraq, maybe it would have turned out to be differently. If Bush hadn't torn up the ABM treaty, maybe it would have turned out to be differently. But then, of course, you get back to the democracy issue. Because if you look at the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution, this is two thousand three four, 4 Putin's response immediately is to say, oh, it's your democracy promotion, it's all your fault. That these leaders who were bringing stability, who cares about democracy, stability to the region are overthrown by what I call people power. And I think that goes back to this sort of visceral fear of true democracy i do think that both sides are proceeding along dual tracks on the one hand we're modernizing our nuclear fleet they're modernizing their nuclear fleet so they retain that capability of you know bombing each other i don't see that as a realistic prospect i think on both sides they actually do believe in the you know mutually assured destruction and they're they're not going to do that it's all for show it's all for status it's all for deterrent value so put that aside. I think the one place now where there could be some movement, especially uh, with Biden coming in, is at least a renewal of the New Start treaty for the five-year period, while we negotiate uh, the the future details based on newer technologies and then verification and all that kind of stuff. And I think you have to start there because at the moment that's sort of the one area where I see that there could be some. At least holding pattern, if not progress, down the road, if we could then build some trust, regardless of who's in power in either country, then you might be able to deal with climate change. You might be able to deal with terrorism. But remember, the definitions of terrorism seem to be different or seem to be applied to uh, different groups. What about cybersecurity? If I were advising anybody, I would say it's a non-starter. Because do if, if I'm worried about Russian cyber intrusion into my elections, do I trust them to work with them to abide by any agreement I would sign? Not at the moment. I kind of think that's a joke. That's going to be a toughie because of the history on both sides, actually, of the intrusions. We've done it to them and they've done it to us. I think that's going to be a tougher sell in terms of you know any kind of accommodation or any kind of agreement. I think that you almost have a better chance with Biden in the White House because Donald Trump, his bravado notwithstanding, couldn't do anything even if he wanted to because everybody was already so suspicious as a legacy of the 2016 elections.
2: Nothing in history is ever predetermined. It takes it takes actions to get to get somewhere. And it took a series of actions to get to where we are
3: today. I had a question in the transcripts that were declassified by the Clinton Digital Library that deal with Putin in the late 90s and, and his very early presidency. He talks about several things that would be I, I you wouldn't necessarily expect him to discuss with an American president. It's either, you know, it's like the curse disaster, he criticizes Russian voters. He talks about removing Milosevic from power. You know they negotiate these things. Was that kind of openness unusual? Or if you go back to the Yeltsin archives, or even what we know about negotiations with Soviet leaders, was that the sort of thing that was discussed, or is that really indicative of of either you know this this state of Russia being a supplicant state to the West, or just its its weakness in the throughout the '90s and even in the early 2000s, like. Just over the grand array of diplomatic history, how unusual is that kind of rhetoric?
2: Well, you have this kind of frank relationships and this kind of interactions even outside of a context of, you know, close alignment or, or close relationship. One thing that comes to mind, for example, is the very close relationship that Nixon enjoyed with um, Brezhnev. You go back to those conversations in the early 1970s, and you can see how Brezhnev really tried to relate on a very personal level to Nixon and how he was trying to project this idea and and make Nixon believe in this idea of a Soviet-American condominium that would effectively run the world. He was really heart-selling this idea to the Americans, and the Americans were like, well, you know, <laughs> we also have China, and we don't want, you know, they they were, they they were did not really buy this idea. But you can clearly see how despite the supposed ideological gap between the Soviet Union and the United States, despite their alleged, you know, confrontation in the context of the Cold War, here you have a leader, who comes out and basically reaches out to the Americans and tries to build this personal relationship with Nixon, goes to the United States. His record of meeting with Nixon and the White House was actually recorded because Nixon was secretly taping, of course, his conversations in the Oval Office. So you can actually listen to this now and you think, wow, you know, this is so interesting. Here, how Brezhnev is just trying to uh flatter Nixon, you know, how he talks about his like, you know grandchildren and whatnot, and just tries to relate on a personal level. So really interesting, fascinating aspect. But the key thing for Brezhnev at that time was to be treated as America's key partner. Michael McFall served as U.S. ambassador to
3: Russia. So he knows a thing or two about what world leaders say to each other when the cameras aren't rolling. I asked him about the differences between the Putin we know today and the one who emerges from those 20-year-old Clinton archives. In those transcripts, one of the things that stands out is how open he seems to be with American figures. And I wonder, you know, you've, you've had firsthand experience with this in the I mean if those if those took place, I suppose like 12 or so years before, or maybe like a decade if before your your personal experiences as as ambassador, can you convey to me like what the the tone it was of kind of US Russian diplomatic relations? I'm because I I guess I wanted to know if what we see in kind of cordial diplomatic Records from the the Clinton Library. Does that reflect just kind of general professional diplomacy, or has the relationship changed, I- even even in tone, when it, even p- behind closed doors, essentially? Like, was the, was there a friendly atmosphere, or was it? You, you you talk about you know the the paranoia being palpable. Can can you tell me, like, just on a human level, what is it like to be in the room with with people?
0: Just like my country, you know, there is not a unitary state in Russia. And when it comes to diplomacy, people behave in very different ways. The, the mood music and atmospherics that you're talking about were radically different if you were talking to Medvedev versus Putin, just to, to state the obvious. I mean, Medvedev, people forget this, Medvedev wanted the reset with the United States more than we wanted to, the reset with him. It was the most important thing to him. It was and arguably the only thing he was <laughs> accomplishing at the time. I think Medvedev, you know, in his the way he constructed it, thought that he was some kind of modernizer in a very constrained environment. You know, believe me, he was well aware of those constraints. And by the way, let me just say for the record, we were well aware of those constraints too. Uh, when I hear that we put all our bets on Medvedev, that's absurd. You know, we had we had pretty good intelligence as to where the balance of power was between the prime minister and the president at the time. But because if you're trying to If you self-identify as somebody who's incrementally modernizing political society, then then you're relaxed about, you know, we had big philosophical conversations about the relationship between democracy and development and the rule of law with Medvedev, and you could never have those conversations with Putin. That's, That's the point I wanted to make because he always, when he heard those kind of languages, he always put it through his analytic framework that this is an attack. On him personally, in a way that Medvedev didn't. And it got worse. I want to be clear, Kevin, about that.
3: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from three experts on Russian foreign policy and Moscow's modern relationship with the West former U.S. ambassador to Russia and political scientist Michael McFall. International Relations Professor Sergei Rajchenko, and Dr. Carol Savitz, a Senior Advisor in the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our only English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Click, 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 subscribe, subscribe, share, share. It helps. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for discussion about Moldova's new president. That's next week on The Naked Pravda. All uh-huh. right.